live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm with the Eugene, your other co-host. And we're going to be talking today about Medicaid. Uh, Edwith, you want to give us some some context on what today's show is going to be about? Sure. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Today we're going to be talking about Medicaid, the government program that provides health coverage to low-income people in the U.S. Um, Medicaid is one of the largest payers for health care in this country. As of July 2019, over 65 million people in the U.S. were enrolled in this program. Recently, Medicaid has been in the news a lot, as politicians and voters have discussed the expansions to the program that were made available to states under the Affordable Care Act, to controversial work requirements that some states have enacted, to how the program can be amended to work better and more efficiently for more people. So we're really excited to be joined by some really great guests um, to break down exactly what Medicaid is, who the program helps, and the threats the program is facing. We're joined today by Fabiola Carrion, the senior attorney at the National Health Law Program, and Jamil Fields Alsbrook, director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Awesome. So to, uh, to start us off, Fabiola, can you talk to us a bit about the mission of the National Health Law Program and, and what does your work as senior attorney entail? Sure, absolutely, and thank you for having me. Um, the National Health Law Program is a public interest law firm that protects and advances the health rights of low-income and underserved individuals. We have three offices in L.A., California, Carborough, North Carolina, and Washington, D.C., and what we do is we educate, advocate, and litigate. Um, what I do as a senior attorney is provide technical assistance to legal and non-legal advocates in the form of legal research and policy analysis, uh, by drafting memos, fact sheets, issue briefs, and by helping to answer general questions that advocates may have, as well as we um, are a sounding board in particular when it comes to issues related to healthcare coverage, um, and in particular our bread and butter, which is Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. Um, I specifically focus on reproductive and sexual health, and um, even going deeper than that, um, I work a lot on um, abortion policy in, at the state level. Great. Thank you, Fabiola. Um, and, and really glad to have you on the show lending your expertise to this conversation. Um, Jamil, if you could uh, share a bit about your background as well, the, the work that you're doing and the, uh, the work and mission of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Sure. So as was mentioned, I'm the director of Women's Health and Rights of the Women's Initiative here at uh, the Center for American Progress. And so the um, objective of the Women's Initiative is to advance progressive policies related to women's health and lives. So we uh, have two different teams under that initiative, one related to economic security, so issues such as paid leave. And then we also have the women's health uh, side of the, the, the team. And so I lead the women's 
women's health uh, team. And the way I see our work there is twofold. One, advancing policies related to health care that particularly impact women, so reproductive health care access, uh, specifically access to abortion, birth control, uh, and other services. But I also see our work as um, ensuring that women's health is a part of the larger uh, health care conversation, so uh, the broader delivery system reform um, and other issues that impact women's health like climate change. Yeah, I mean, that's such a... So I think there's a ton to dive into there just with the sort of the cliffhanger of like climate change. I think so often folks don't think about climate change and healthcare and climate change and women's healthcare in particular. Um, and so just uh, uh, so much there to, to sort of dive into as well. Um, but even before we sort of begin to get into these deeper conversations, can you... The complexity of the healthcare in this system... I'm sorry, sorry the healthcare system in this country uh, can be so confusing. Uh, can you uh, just sort of give us a high-level definition of what Medicaid is, which is the, the main topic of what we're going to be discussing today, and, and how does it differ from other health systems like uh, the Affordable Care Act and the plans offered under the ACA or private insurance offered by employers or, or even Medicare? Sure, I can kick it off and then I will uh, turn it over to Fabiola, who I'm sure will have uh, other things to add. Um, so Medicaid, as was mentioned, is a program for certain low-income individuals. And I emphasize certain uh, low-income individuals because um, it does not uh, provide coverage to everyone who is low-income. Uh, to some people's surprise, you have to meet um, certain eligibility standards. Um, but for those who qualify, it provides uh, uh, health care coverage for them. Um, Specifically uh, to our conversation today, it provides uh, a range of health care benefits that states have to provide, such as family planning services, some pregnancy-related services, some children's health services. Uh, And the uh, states can also provide some benefits that are different and unique to Medicaid that are not um, what we would normally have in our employer plan or other private plan, such as states might provide uh, non-emergency transportation. Transportation um, for for individuals to uh, go actually be able to access care, and it also provides some um, due process protections that is unique to Medicaid, giving you access to go to court and defend your right uh, uh, to the Medicaid uh, benefit and those things you're entitled to. Great, great, thank you, uh, Fabiola. Anything that you would that you would uh, jump in and add with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ed West mentioned that um, Medicaid is the largest health insurance program in the country. I mean, just to paint you a picture, 71% of Americans have either been covered, have a child covered, or a close family friend um, or relative who has been covered by Medicaid. So it certainly covers uh, many, many, many people. And in contrast to other public funded programs like Medicare, um, and this will be important for the context of our discussion, Medicaid is a state federal partnership, right? So the states work with the federal government to make sure that they provide um, health care services to low-income individuals. If, like um, Jamil said, you know, they know they not only have to be low income, they have to also be um, under traditional Medicaid. They need to be children, pregnant women, um, older adults, and people with disabilities. Um, many people do not qualify for Medicare, for instance, um, for Medicaid, for instance, um, undocumented um, immigrants. You must be a state resident. Um, there are a lot of qualifications that um, a 
a person needs to go through in order to qualify for Medicaid. Um, and as I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, the Affordable Care Act created a new Medicaid eligibility category. This is for adults who are under the age of 65 and don't fit into this traditional eligibility category that I was just talking about. Um, so 36 states and the District of Columbia have expanded Medicaid. We still have 14 states that have not. As I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, hopefully that um, landscape will change a little bit after last night's um, elections. But um, Medicaid is, is extremely um, popular. It's um, helped to support uh, millions of people. Um, it has saved lives. Um, and those states that have not expanded Medicaid um, have um, actually, you know, 15,000 lives have been um, uh, cut because those states did not expand Medicaid. The, the last thing I will mention um, in contrast to other um, health insurance programs is that Medicare, for instance, is an age-based uh, federal program um, where individuals age 65 and over and then some individuals with disabilities um, can, can qualify. So really, Medicaid is the largest insurance program and, and why we see that it is so popular. And the only other thing, sorry, Fabiola made me think think about something. I should have said full disclosure up front that I also used to work at the National Health Law Program, so Fabiola <laughs> have a, and I have a, a similar sort of background, um, so we might feed off each other. But um, she mentioned sort of it being the uh, lot one of the largest programs. I, it also should uh, be clear for this conversation that Medicaid plays for 50% of births in this country as one of the largest payers of reproductive health care services. And so uh, one thing we frequently talk about about is Medicaid, you know, is in program for a lot of different populations, but it's particularly important for women and, and, and really is a women's health program. Did, did you say 50%? 50% of births. 50% of births. Nearly 50%. It's like 49 or 48 or that something. Is, like so that. that is significant. Yeah. Like we are talking about an, an absolutely critical component of the healthcare system in this country. Definitely. And we know that Medicaid can help influence things like a, um, like we, a frequent conversation right now is around the maternal health and, and infant yeah. health crisis. And given Medicaid is a payer of 50 percent of, of births and, you know, they can tackle some of those issues and sort of um, uh, influence even other programs. Great. So we're going to go to break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with uh, with Jamil. Uh, and Fabiola about Medicaid and all things related to health care. So we'll be back right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about uh, Medicaid, the government program that provides health care, health coverage to low-income people in the U.S. Um, and we are joined by Jamil Fields Alsbrook, Director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress, and Fabiola Carrion, the Senior Attorney at the National Health Law Program. Hi, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so we had a really great conversation of learning all the different ins and outs of Medicaid. Um, Jamil, why should more people be talking slash thinking about Medicaid right now? Is Medicaid in danger? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, you know, uh, yes, more people should be thinking and talking about uh, Medicaid, one, uh, because it's just an importantly vital program. Um, it's also, um, like you mentioned, it's a program for certain low-income people. And, you know, sometimes people can think, well, it's not an issue for me. I don't I don't need to, to care, care about it. But we see a lot of people, as people lose employer coverage or lose their individual insurance coverage, many people find themselves turning to Medicaid. And so, you know, it's something that um, you should care about as, as a general matter. But in particular, for in recent times, we have seen more and more attacks on the Medicaid program, um, particularly happening in the last three years. Um, uh, and, and, even, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and even before then. Um, so one thing that um, I know Fabiola can talk a lot about is a, sort of imposing these uh, onerous and, quite frankly, from my opinion, racist work requirements, uh, where conditioning people's Medicaid eligibility upon um, work or other sort of engagement. Um, Other, we've seen uh, states, uh, and this predates, unfortunately, the past three years, states trying to kick uh, certain uh, family planning providers out of the Medicaid program. Um, So uh, waiving the ability of individuals to access the provider that they choose. Um, Sometimes trying to kick specifically aimed at Planned Parenthood, but certainly not limited to, uh, and trying to kick other family planning providers out of the program. Um, We've also seen, uh, you know, with all of the, in all of the ACA repeal bills, there was attempts to change the uh, fundamental structure of the Medicaid program and turn it from being this sort of entitlement program where you, if you're eligible, you get the benefits to change it to be something, um, you know, the block granting per capita cap, I won't go and all that, but just change it to be something uh, that would not be an entitlement program and that would have ultimately resulted in people being kicked out of the program. Uh, and even though those attempts failed, I bring it up now because we see uh, recent efforts to try to do that administratively. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tennessee, for example, uh, uh, was uh, proposing a uh, a block granting proposal that would change the structure of their um, uh, their state Medicaid program. And if something like that were allowed, uh, we unfortunately would see other states trying to do the same thing. So. Wow, that's a lot that's happening with Medicaid. Um, And I think you already mentioned that Fabiola can talk a little bit about that, too. Some of the challenges Fabiola. Do you have anything to add in terms of the challenges to Medicaid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I completely agree that um, <laughs> for the last three years, Medicaid has been in danger. And I think as long as this, as conservative um, state legislatures, as well as this administration continue to um, govern, it will always um, be in danger. Um, our organization, the National Health Law Program, has um, taken the, uh, the lead effort in suing states um, who uh, have tried to implement work requirements through 1115 waivers. Um, right now, um, a, a few weeks ago, our case was um, he heard by the um, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, we're hoping for a favorable outcome any minute now. Um, right after we sued Indiana, Indiana retracted on their work requirements um, proposal. Um, and also, like I mentioned yet, um, earlier, I think last night we saw both that in Virginia as well as in Kentucky, those who went ahead to um, 
support um, the expansion of Medicaid and um, you know, oppose work requirements of one. So we we see, well, we're seeing that there are a lot of attacks by certain policymakers. We also see uh, uh, an increase in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, like Jamil was saying, um, you know, our arguments for work requirements is that they're illegal, cruel, and damaging. Um, they undermine economic security and reproductive health, and they uh, pose an unnecessary burden on Medicaid enrollees. So even those who um, are supposed to be exempted for the work requirements are still subject to reporting and documentation requirements, and we're still seeing those people lose coverage. So um, yes, absolutely, work requirements is is one of the the biggest threats along with the Medicaid block grant waiver that's being considered in Tennessee. And just to uh get some grounding just a little bit. What exactly are work requirements? What does that look like for folks? Yeah, so work requirements are basically requirements, like they're called work and community engagement requirements, where in each state the proposal is different. Um, It's maybe from 40 to 100 hours. Um, Some of the allocations happen per week and then some per month. And so... um, Medicaid recipients are supposed to either work, look for a job, go to school, volunteer, or participate in a job training program. The problem with that is, one, it makes the assumption that people in the Medicaid program do not want to work, which is completely untrue. And then, two, it poses an undue burden on those um, enrollees, right, who, by the way, also have to um, report this and and have um, various communications issues. You know, they don't have a computer, they don't have a working phone, um, they need assistance with communicating. So, um, yeah, the work requirements are are a huge burden for for these enrollees. Thank you so much for that explanation. Um, Fabiola, you talked a little bit about uh, the expansion Oh, it's time for a break. All right. We'll be right back and I'll be able to ask that question. Hi, this is Adwithia Jean, your co-host and... Brent J. Cohen, you're the co-host. And we are here with Jamil from Jamil from the Center for American <laughs> Progress and Fabiola from the National <coughs> Health Law Program. Thank you so much for joining us. And we are talking about Medicaid. Um, before we went off on our last break, we were talking about work requirements. And one question that I did have about work requirements was, um, who does work requirements, uh, who do they impact? Like, who do they affect and why are they so harmful? Um, Jamil, can you jump in? Sure. I'll, so I'll start. So um, one, um, you know, Medicaid, uh, people of color are disproportionately served under the Medicaid program, so particularly black and Latinas, uh, and Latinas and Latinos. And so uh, by imposing sort of these onerous work requirements, those are populations that are um, most significantly harmed. Uh, it's also just a, sort of a side note, it's a tangent on these work requirements. I think we mentioned before how uh, these are 
unnecessary and they're often made under these guise of we uh, people will um, to get people back to work so they can eventually uh, get off of uh, Medicaid and it doesn't take into the account that people uh, who are most people on Medicaid do work uh, and those who uh, are unable to work uh, usually have have a reason for not uh, uh, working so many people might be child care taking care of children and we know how much child care costs in this country uh, some people might have an ailment taking care of a parent um, and when they were thinking about imposing these sort of work requirements on a national uh, level, again, under uh, the various repeal bills. There was a study that came out that talked about how uh, the the work requirements, uh, 60% of the people that would have been impacted were women. Mm. Uh, and that is because women are more likely to be uh, caretakers. Uh, and so uh, the work requirements, you know, they harm people who usually are harmed, uh, to say it that way, uh, lower income people, people of color, uh, women are, are uh, among the groups that are, m- are most harmed. You know, and I, hearing this conversation, Jamil, and I'm thinking about uh, something you said at the at sort of early on in your answer about how uh, black women and Latinas in particular, but also Latinos are disproportionately represented on Medicaid. And thinking about this from an intersectional lens, that's not like that didn't just happen. We're talking about a history and legacy of racism in this country, structural racism um, that has led to higher levels of poverty, that have led to exclusion from wealth um, building through things like education, higher salary wages and employment, like redlining, right? Like we're talking about homeownership. All of these things that we don't think of as being healthcare issues are in fact healthcare issues because one, they're impacting people's health. Uh, Lack of poverty in and of itself impacts people's health. And two, for some folks who may not be able to work for a variety of reasons, and I know that the majority of people on Medicaid are in fact working, uh, but not making the type of living wage that we need to be able to also sustain healthcare. But for those who aren't working and have reasons for why they're not working, if they were coming from a family of wealth, right? And this goes back to the history of, of discrimination and racism in this country, where we have a racial wealth gap for very intentional policy reasons uh, that, that date back generations, for folks who, who are coming from money uh, and they're unable to work or choose not to work, they still have health care. Yeah, they can afford health care. And, and and also many of us don't think about or realize the significant cost of going out and buying health care because we've never had to think about it, right? Many of us are fortunate enough to have jobs that provide health care coverage. And so if even under a, a, a decent salary, so to speak, uh, you might not be able to afford it if you had to go out in the market and buy it just for yourself. And so, again, you know, if the majority of people work on Medicaid are working, but many of them are in jobs that don't provide health insurance coverage. And so um, the sort of idea that, um, you know, we'll just impose work requirements upon people. uh, And then it can also, um, to further complicate the matter, as if the matter wasn't already complicated, you can lead to people uh, who now work and end up earning more and then not qualifying for Medicaid in the first place. Right. So you have this sort of, um, you know, uh, I won't say the phrase, but darned if you do and darned if you don't sort of right. situation. Just, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just want to take it, we'll sort of pull one more thread here. And, and, and like nearly 50% of births are to women who are, are receiving Medicaid uh, is something that you had mentioned. In addition to many jobs not providing health care, many jobs don't provide maternity leave. 
at least not paid maternity leave. We're one of what a handful of countries, or are we the only country that doesn't? This is certainly your more your area than ours, but I know we're woefully behind the rest of the the world in terms of providing maternity leave. And so you have women who give birth and are literally not receiving a paycheck while they're at home trying to recover from what is a, a hugely significant moment, and not to mention trauma to the body that takes place during childbirth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's why, um, you know, Medicaid has been such a sort of a, a sort of a lifeline and an access point for many women. Like I said, 50 percent of births in this country are uh, through under the Medicaid program. And so, uh, you know, it's important to maintain that access It's important that that um, women aren't uh, harmed by these attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other attack I forgot to mention, I know you didn't ask me, but I'll mention it, uh, that I, f- I forgot to mention earlier was around this uh, uh, uh public charge rule um, that folks might have heard about. And so uh, people might not realize sort of that ends up being a a Medicaid issue. Um, But uh, without going into all the details and nuance, essentially what the rule is saying is that um, it's a giving new ground for people to not be able to um, uh, those who are seeking to change their immigration status. So for instance, get a green card or uh, 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 seeking to be admitted in to this country um, saying if you even look like you might be able to uh, qualify or might access Medicaid, um, then we will deny you either entry into the country or deny you um, your changing your citizenship status. And so uh, there is a problematic issue, obviously, from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even broader than the specific people that it impacts, um, there are many people who won't understand the nuances of it and who might just not seek to enroll in Medicaid as a, in general um, because they think uh, that might get them uh, removed from the country or we, they think that um, that might uh, impact their family. And so um, even beyond just the direct issue on the policy, it ends up being an issue on people who might otherwise need to access care in the Medicaid program. Yeah. Um, Switching gears for just a little bit, but still staying in the vein about who Medicaid is for and who it benefits and who is impacted by a lot of these different challenges. Um, Fabiola, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the Hyde Amendment and how that kind of uh, affects and impacts um, people who are on Medicaid. Fabiola, are you there? Sorry, yes. Oh, I, I didn't know whether you could uh, you could hear me. Um, yes, I'm here. Could you repeat that question, please? Sure. I was just asking if you can share a little bit about the Hyde Amendment um, and how yeah. that, yeah. Yes, of course, of course. So the Hyde Amendment is um, it's essentially an appropriations bill, writer. It's not necessarily a statutory law, but it's, it's something that I get gets attached to the congressional budget every year. And since 1976, it has restricted um, federal funding for abortion services, except in the circumstances of rape, incest, or life endangerment. Um, So the programs that get affected by that Hyde Amendment are uh, Medicaid, Medicare, um, TRICARE, which is the health care coverage for um, individuals in the military. However, um, states have the chance to use their own Medicaid funding to cover abortion passes circumstances. Um, And unfortunately, only six states at at this time um, 
offers such coverage, which means that you have close to 40 million women um, in the U.S. Um, who are enrolled in Medicaid and who do not have abortion coverage. Wow. And abortion is health care. So that's really shocking. Abortions are very much health care. Yes. Yes, completely agree. Um, and what I would, I would have to say to that is that you know, we were talking about Medicaid covering half of U.S. births. Yes, and Medicaid also covers three-fourths, three-quarters of all public-funded um, family planning services nationwide. So really, Medicaid is part of a person's life cycle, right, from the time that they are trying to avoid to, uh, you know, either avoid or space their pregnancy to the time that they want to terminate it to the, one, to the time where they want to uh, give birth and have postpartum care, um, if, you know, even if they want to become sterilized. So, um, yes, definitely, and unfortunately, the Hyde Amendment uh, creates that interruption in what could have been a, a, a you know, a lifetime coverage of Medicaid and the reproductive health care of, of women who are involved in it. And I think both of you also shared that Medicaid, there are children that are enrolled in Medicaid as well. Yeah, so the Medicaid program also covers a significant portion of um, children. I don't know the number off the top of my head. And uh, it's both children and also um, adolescents and even up to young adults. Um, So um, uh, the Medicaid program, people up until through the age of 21 uh, would be able to qualify for certain Medicaid benefits. So, uh, you know, it's important not only when we think about issues like we mentioned earlier uh, around uh, maternal health, but also then... um, after you uh, vote for the mother and then after uh, you, if, if you have a child and the, the lifespan of, of children as well. Yeah, I was just thinking about how, Fabiola, you offered that this is a program that basically works in the life cycles of mm-hmm. Americans across this country, of folks across this country. Um, Can, sorry, Edward, before we go forward, I, I actually want to take us back a, a quick second um, before we, bef- and, and maybe we end on this and then come back after the, in the next segment. But uh, the intersection about the public charge rule in Medicaid and the fact that the statements from this administration about uh, people who are legally in this country, but have, they've essentially said you cannot take or you cannot, you, you cannot use resources that are available to you because if you do, you will not be allowed to get uh, to progress in the citizenship process uh, and actually attain citizenship through. Uh, and, and I think that's an example of the Trump administration not just seeking to, quote unquote, uh, uh, lockdown on undocumented immigrants, but really as an effort to block and, and cut off all pathways to legal citizenship as well. And it has profound implications on the healthcare front, where you're now talking about folks either being scared to sign up for or choosing not to sign up for things like Medicaid for fear that it could jeopardize their standing in this country uh, going forward. Uh, and so, you know, I think we talk about these different issues oftentimes in silos, but the reality is. Uh, the policies from this administration are putting um, families and oftentimes women in particular really at um, in in perilous positions and really putting in in make forcing people to make unhealthy and dangerous decisions um, mm-hmm. for no reason other than cruelty. And I and I think it's important that we that we say that out loud as we have these conversations and identify these areas of intersection and the impact that it's having uh, on families across the board. 
Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. I would also add that that chilling effect that you say, um, it's already occurring. We're already seeing a decrease in particular states in the middle of the country of children being enrolled in Medicaid. So as I'm sure you, you understand, a lot of families are, a lot of immigrant families are in mixed in, um, immigration status yeah. uh, situations. So while one person might qualify for Medicaid, the other person won't. And just out of fear that, you know, a relative or, you know, would get in trouble or not be able to secure that green card, um, the permanent status, Mm -hmm. uh, they won't apply to Medicaid when they were entitled to. Um, We're seeing this in in states like where, like my home state of California, where um, actually Medi-Cal, our Medicaid program, covers extensive services for even undocumented children. And now we're just expanding Medicaid uh, for young adults. Um, and it is because we have seen that since this administration, even before the public rule came into effect, and by the way, it has been suspended thanks to the litigation that um, the National Health Law Program and many others have engaged in to, um, to stop it, um, you know, they're not, we're seeing this, uh, that people are not applying. We're already seeing this, we're already seeing the numbers. Yeah, and the only thing I will add is only because we're right now in the middle of open enrollment. Um, so open enrollment is open through December 15th, for those who aren't aware. Um, you know, uh, while the chilling effect is definitely real, I would encourage those who might be listening or know a family member who um, might think the public charge rule would impact them to consult um, because it might not impact yeah. them. And so the National Immigration Law Center and many others have great resources to help people navigate um, whether or not they they are able to go ahead and sign up for coverage. Awesome. So okay. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump off to break. We'll be back in just a few minutes to finish up this conversation and continue the conversation around Medicaid. And the importance of health care in this country. Uh, this is the Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show, and we'll be right back. Today we're talking about Medicaid, and we are joined by Jamil Fields Alsbrook, director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress, and also Fabiola Carrion, the senior attorney at the National Health Law Program. Thank you for bringing us back. Um, one thing I wanted to ask uh, Jamil, if you can talk a little bit about, we've been talking about Medicaid and talking about all the different ins and outs and challenges, and one of the challenges that we're curious about is um, around how Medicaid works with the ACA. So as a result of the ACA, a number of states have accepted federal money to expand Medicaid. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what does that even mean? Yeah, sure. So, um, like Fabiola mentioned, um, what the ACA, I think she start, started talking about earlier, was that the ACA created a new category of eligibility. So, like I first started off talking about Medicaid, for all of its greatness and all the benefits um, that we have been talking about, it also hasn't been um, provided coverage to all low-income people. In particular, you had to meet um, certain uh, citizenship requirements, which you still do. You had to also meet certain income requirements, and then you had to additionally meet certain category requirements. So you had to be a person who was low income, met the citizenship requirements, and 
be a parent and be pregnant and be a caretaker of uh, of a child and have a qualifying disability. And so uh, you could quickly see how many people would not qualify for yeah. that. In particular, people, um, you know, sort of the uh, people who might be have no children and be uh, of low income and, and also be an adult. Um, and so what the ACA sought to do was to, one, make some uniform income um, standards around um, uh, the country and increased eligibility up to um, a, a uniform percentage of the federal poverty level um, across every state where uh, before st- states it might your income level could vary across states and then also to remove those category requirements so no longer do you have to meet it, check these certain buckets in order to be qualified for Medicaid um, but there was a little wrinkle with the Supreme Court uh, and the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruling um, uh, essentially made expanding Medicaid a state option. And so some states, uh, 37 states, including D.C. Um, or 36 and D.C., if you say D.C. is not a state, um, have <laughs> um, uh, decided to expand Medicaid. And the federal government is paying, uh, was paying 100% of the cost of that. Now it's, uh, uh, but still, it's, it's fast majority, about 90% of the cost of them expanding Medicaid to more people. But unfortunately, um, 14 states have decided to not expand Medicaid. And so what that essentially means is that for those people in those states still have to abide by the pre-ACA rules and still have to meet those income and category requirements. Uh, And one thing to note is that um, uh, those states are largely concentrated in the South. Yeah. And again, back to this question about who's most impacted, uh, African Americans are a significant portion are concentrated in the South. And so those are the same people who, again, don't benefit from the Medicaid expansion. And then you intersect on top of mm-hmm. that, the same populations of people who uh, have more chronic illnesses and other things due to the systemic racism we talked about before. And so, again, and those are the most harmed by non-expansion of Medicaid. So we have just under one minute left. Um, Fabiola, to, to kick it over to you for a second, if there was one or two things that you'd like to see happen to improve the Medicaid system to work better, could you just share very quickly what what, what those one or two things would be? Um, for those 14 states that are not have not expanded Medicaid, I would hope that um, they would expand Medicaid. I think it would also be great for... Uh, the majority of states who that have not uh, provided abortion coverage under Medicaid to do that, um, and obviously there's always uh, the, the you know the question about reimbursement rates and the fact that there are not as many medi- uh, providers that are registered with Medicaid. So um, providing both re- higher reimbursement rates and therefore increasing the number of providers who mm-hmm. are enrolled in Medicaid will offer uh, more coverage to to those who don't have it now. Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining us for this Thank conversation. You. Generation Progress Take over the Leslie Marshall Show. You can find more on Twitter, um, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks.